Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the La Rouge Rugby Podcast, where we focus on real Canadian rugby. I'm Shiv Hardy, joined as always by Derek Brissett, and we are also joined by an icon of Ontario rugby, the Arrows 2022 captain, and he's been a stalwart ever since uh, the Arrows began in Major League Rugby. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Shepard. Mike, thank you for joining us for this episode of the podcast. Yeah, thanks for the warm introduction. Glad to be here. Uh, well, we start these uh, interviews with a similar question because we know everyone has a different uh, experience of getting into rugby. So, Shep, what got you started in rugby? Uh, the lack of high school football got me started <laughs> in rugby. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was uh, just into grade nine and was really looking forward to playing football. You go in the high school halls and there's pictures all over and then you ask and it's not there anymore. No one's coaching it. So uh, there's another poster on the wall saying, why not try rugby? They do sevens, tens and fifteens in the fall. And that got me into it. But in all honesty, it wasn't curiosity. It was just uh, it was what I had available to me. Yeah, that was uh, that's actually that's the same how I kind of got started in rugby, too, is my my school also didn't have a football team. So it was the alternative. If you uh, wanted to hit people and not get in trouble for it was to play rugby. So that's yeah. how I kind of ended up on this journey as well. For yourself, then it's like um, when when you actually when you finally got started playing rugby, was there anybody like whether it's a coach, family, friends, teammates? Um, was there anybody that was um, super influential at the start of your rugby of your rugby career, or just as you were getting into the sport as well? Yeah, that was my high school coach, Mike Shannon. He's the guy that set the program there. He wasn't actually a teacher there, but there's principal another teacher that really wanted to start this program so they brought him in from the Brandon rugby football club and he's the only you know source of information of rugby i ever had at that point in my life i was only 13 years old never heard of it never played before in my life but he loved it he surrounded you know all of us young kids with a bunch of passion that we just we just dropped right into it we loved every second of it just like in the freezing cold and october just playing sevens rugby and even that i wasn't really prepared for because i stopped playing soccer because i got too big and wasn't fast enough to keep up with that so i tried to play a team sport where i could hit somebody and sevens i couldn't really catch anybody either so that was a <laughs> the right step forward i wanted to make once we got the 15s we all got a bit better from there so when you finally um started uh playing rugby and getting involved in the sport um was there anyone that whenever they step or would have stepped on the pitch that you just love to watch play? I, honestly, at that point, when I started getting rugby, I didn't really know big names yet. Like I was just still trying to take in all information. So I was just watching whatever rugby I could, regardless of who was playing at that point. Like you'd be going on the computer, like looking at the crappiest streams on like first row sports or wherever you can just get any sort of wheel stream because it wasn't on cable. I wasn't yeah. watching it on, you know, CTV Sports or Fox or anything like that. So I was just going for any little bit of information that I could find on dial-up internet back in the early 90s, watching, like trying to watch rugby. So it was, yeah, it was a bit of a stretch for me to try and find a favorite player. What's it like kind of like when you really kind of, I guess, think about how much, I guess, rugby's grown in Canada, kind of like looking back on, as you said, like, you know, first row sports and a whole bunch of other streaming sites and, you know, not really being able to find any games to seeing like, you know, there's rugby on Sportsnet and now you can watch rugby on TSN. Obviously the arrows are on TSN too. Um, so like, what's it kind of like kind of looking back on how hard it actually was to watch rugby, say like 10, 15, 20 years ago versus like 
kind of like the wealth of content available now. It's crazy. Like that's that's what streaming sports have done for you know the world. Like not just even just rugby, but just like any casual fans of like soccer or even darts or anything like that. Like the zone, they show the Six Nations in Canada like every single year. Like back in, I had no idea what the Six Nations was. Like when I was playing, when I started playing rugby, it was it's one of the best rugby tournaments in the world, and I was close to its existence. Now you can watch it coming on right now. You can watch it perfect stream every morning. You can watch the recorded games afterwards as well if you can't wake up to watch it. It's it's just made this game so readily available for everybody, which is just this is something I never had, and I'm really happy it's around right now. Yeah, for sure. So, um, was there any like player like as you kind of started? You know, once like even if you had to watch them on on that crappy stream, and like as you started, as you said, it's maybe becoming aware of the Six Nations, becoming aware of some of the other major rugby competitions. Is there anybody that anybody or any teams that you kind of started to gravitate to as you were getting into the sport, or maybe even try to borrow a little something and inject it into your game as well? Yeah, uh, the only one that really stands out is when we when I used to watch the uh, internationals. I remember Martin Johnson uh, a lot, just a big bruising second row. You know, we got similar hair now in this stage of my life as well. Sort of like that about him. Uh, yeah, like I grew up, my my dad's English. So we have British background and all that sort of stuff. So obviously I gravitated more towards English rugby growing up. And uh, yeah, he's a big, tough bastard. And I always respect that. Yeah, I can respect that as well. <laughs> uh, so moving on from picking up the sport in high school, uh, you played rugby as well at Macau. Master University. In fact, he won two OUA championships and was selected to the OUA All-Stars. So how important was university-level rugby and should it provide a stepping stone towards professionalism for Canadian student-athletes? Yeah, for my personal development, it was absolutely massive. Uh, so I, I went to Mac. My high school principal was a Mac alumni and so was Mike Shannon, my high school coach. And mm -hmm. I went since saw a few different universities, but McMaster was a good fit. You know, I grew up in Brampton. I didn't want to be too far from home. It's only about an hour away. So when visit the campus, it was great, beautiful, good rugby program. When I had gone there, they, I think they had won like four of the five previous years as well. So it was good to step into a program with that winning history. And, the amount of, like, and this, again, going from high school where I had one coach, trying to coach you know, 30 different kids. Now you go into a university program where you have a forwards coach, you have line out coach, you have attack and defensive and a bunch of different minds coming together to bring one big scheme. That was my first real introduction to like, okay, this is how you can actually set up a decent rugby program with a lot of depth at the, at the positional level. So, you know, just for me, it was vastly important. I think as we get towards a more professional environment in Canada, it's more and more programs like Queens and Guelph and Laurier and all the ones out West like UVic and, uh, and UBC, you know, the talent that's being produced from those young ages is vastly important to growing the sport into the uh, adult level. As a non-Canadian, um, when you were competing in it, what did the OUA championship involve? It was everything. It, it was like, it was all of our dreams. Like I had buddies that went to different universities, different programs, competed against them. And I had a bunch of friends that went to back as well. And you know, winning the OUAs as a young man was the, what we had. That was the goal. Like you wanted to win that championship. That was the highest level of rugby that you could be playing 
when like you're 18 to 21 years old. That was the dream. That's what you wanted. You wanted that gold more than anything. I remember that very specifically. Um, yeah, I don't really know how to answer it more than I just wanted it really, really fucking bad. <laughs> Do you have any like specific memories of uh, like the championship games or anything that you kind of like really look back fondly on as like, a, you know, it's like, as you said, just like a really big moment in your rugby career because that at the time was definitely the, the peak of uh, rugby if uh, under a certain age anyways. Yeah, for sure. I look back at the winning fondly because there's nothing like winning a championship especially with your buddies at that time. Was well, not too fun. Is you that game was always played in early November right. at Fletcher's Fields, mm-hmm. where it is just god awful weather. The, it is muddy. It is cold. It was rainy every single year. Whether we were playing in that gold medal game or the bronze medal game, it's all played. It was all played there. It was all to Fletcher's, and it was always just a miserable, cold November day that you had to play that. And it's just, and again, growing up, if you grew up in the UK. That's the kind of rugby you're probably used to year round. But mm-hmm. that is exactly what we had to get used to, especially as a young young guys and young boys playing that game uh you gotta harden up really quickly if you want to survive in that sort of environment yeah so um you kind of you obviously went from the university level and then played a lot for you know uh, at the club level with brampton stony creek and you know ultimately a lot with the ontario blues as well and uh we kind of want to get into a little bit of how like the ontario blues and the connection to i guess the beginning of the toronto arrows and that kind of evolution um but we'll maybe just start a little broadly like do you have any like favorite memories of your time um representing the province of ontario with the blues program over the years yeah i mean the same thing more or less with the university like the championships stand out as well obviously the ontario blues like was a massively program in those uh, early 2010s, even late 2000s years. Uh, my fondest memory is just like, that was the first time I got to play with real men. Like, yeah, I had played the, the club rugby high school and university rugby, but then once you get out of that, then you're 22, 23 years old, and then you're actually playing with, you know, 29, 30, 31, 32-year-olds that have played for Canada before and are well aware that they can beat the shit out of you. And you mm-hmm. learn that pretty quickly. Like you're now playing with men. You're not, you know, the best in your age class anymore. You're not the best in your schools. Like you're here to get within the shape for the first two to three years before you actually can make something yourself in that league if you stick with it. Yeah. And obviously you did stick with it. And um, eventually, like, what was, I guess, as a player that obviously played for the Blues and then played for the Ontario Arrows and eventually. Um, the Toronto Arrows in Major League Rugby. What was kind of like that transition like of, you know, being a player that's part of a program that was slowly gravitating from, I guess, being a provincial representative team to eventually becoming the first professional rugby team in Canada? Yeah, we just said it. Like, it was slow. It was a long process. Like, that got not dragged out is necessarily the right word, but, like, it was a long process of, okay, this is the Ontario system. This is what we play. We play three different teams from all across Canada. Like you have the Rock, you got BC, and you got the Wolfpack, but you're just continuously playing those three teams. And yeah, we did like some fun, good little mini tours. Like we went out to the Scotland. Some of the boys went down to South America for one yard tours as well. But it really, like it had to evolve at some point. Like eventually you couldn't just keep playing BC. You couldn't just keep playing the Prairies. You couldn't just keep playing the Rock. Like something had to come from that to make Canadian rugby better and to like make it a more, widespread and accessible sport so when that's first year changed and we had the ontario arrows okay now we're taking a trip down to houston now we're going to take a trip down to utah we're going to take a trip down to new york we're just going to play these other really good teams 
that are sort of on the same level as us. They want to have some different competition. I'm sure, like rugby club, rugby North, rugby United New York was tired of playing like Syracuse and all the other like mm-hmm. Austin, all the same teams that they were playing. Us, so they want a different challenge. They want to see what else is out there. Luckily, that sample year gave way to what we have now, which is MLR, which is you're playing the best of the best in very different parts of the country. As as a player, on like on an individual level too, like what was, I guess, the transition from going from playing amateur, essentially like amateur rugby, to being a professional rugby player, and that 2019 season of being a full, fully realized professional rugby season. The the biggest transition is the off field stuff. Like at least for me personally, like you're playing provincial rugby with your friends that you've been with forever and you know some of these games they might not mean anything so what do you do after the game you know you go have you go have pints you go out on we get on the town you go down john street and you just get totally annihilated whereas now you know these games mean something and then the next week also means something so you're really trying to take care of your body a bit more you still go out for a few beers but you just drink a bit less you're just smarter about it you make sure that your recovery is there as well the next day like you're not eating shit every single meal of the day you know you're watching what you yeah. put in your body you're taking care of your body more because of what it means to not just you but everyone else you're with as well no one wants to be on a team a professional team with a bunch of booze bags like you're all there to win like that's that's the main goal essentially so that was the biggest transition for me it wasn't so much the on-field effort because these guys were still busting their ass in practice and trying to be good rugby players but it's the off-field shit that really was that big transition for us. Um, speaking about the uh, first season with the Toronto Arrows, so the Ontario Arrows had been set up in uh, like late 2017, early 2018. There had been a few exhibition games, but the turnaround time from the Arrows being named as a team for the 2019 season and then actually playing that season was quite short. It was only a few months. So um, how were things in like the training camps and behind the scenes? Like how were you and your teammates able to prepare in such a short time? I understand that you get uh, the rumor <laughs> mill had been like, oh, Toronto's joining or the Ontario hours will be joining in 2019. Yeah. But you're waiting on like that rubber stamp to come through and you to really get going. Yeah, so uh, it was frantic, it felt at times. I'm sure my memory isn't uh, serving me quite well, but we had a lot of good pieces together. Like Again, it was a majority of that Ontario senior men's program, so we already had a lot of good chemistry, a lot of good guys that knew what they were doing, and then we were just waiting for some other pieces to come in. So while we were waiting for that final stamp of approval, playing the league, we are also waiting on you know guys like Sam Malcolm or Morgan Mitchell, Spencer Jones, guys that – are coming into this environment to help fill some of those small gaps that we have and to potentially make us better, which they did. So really it was catching them up to speed on what we'd have already known for years together as a core group of players and then integrating them into that system, which thankfully was quite easy uh, because they were all smart guys. They were all quality rate players. You know, Sam still plays with us. Spencer's out in, uh, in Boston and he's making a good career for himself as well. But we picked these guys because we knew what they could bring to our team and to bring us that kind of success. So, yeah, it was a bit crazy at the start. It was not a lot of time to prepare, but thankfully we had a good foundation and we just had a few blue guys come in to really stick us together. 
Yeah. And so as the season started, um, you guys kind of got stuck with a huge eight game road trip the entire first half of the season on uh, on the road. Um, how was that as a introduction to professional rugby for not even really having a home game for the first two months of this year? Yeah, it was, you know, it's basically it's essentially what it's what you think it is. It's exactly what you think it was. It was leaving for a weekend and then flying back in, trying to get a few practices in on your home field before you pack up again to go on the road again for another road trip. And look, it was, it was rough. We, we pulled together. I think we finished four and four, you know, we won 500, which I think was honestly fair. I think that was a good outcome for what you could expect for a team that was going eight weeks straight in the road. But the best thing that we did get out of that was all the exposure we got to have together as a team off the field as well. So it was that really important social bonding that we got to do, like I mentioned before. Even though it was still under control, that's a good time to get to know these new guys and you know understand what they're playing for, why they're playing for it, and how they can make ourselves better and how we can help them make us better as well. So it was a really good chance to do all that team social bonding, which you know, anybody that's played in a sporting environment knows that it could be almost as important as the on-field bonding as well. Yeah, any uh super like fond memories, or maybe maybe like an off off pitch memory from uh that road trip to start the uh the Arrows endeavor in the professional rugby? Anything that you're allowed to talk about on this, anyways? Yeah, well, if you're talking about New Orleans specifically, no, I'm going to keep that one. Uh, <laughs> I'll keep that one close to chest, but uh, no, it's um, oh, there's nothing really specific that just stands out to me. You know, it's uh, that was a long time ago, but like I again, I'll never. I'll never forget the boys I was with. Like I always keep in contact with Morgan and all those guys, even Rob Brower, guys have retired since then. Like you, you form really good friendships and good bonds with those sort of guys. Like you're not gonna be able to be creative. Yeah, for sure. So mm-hmm. obviously at the end of that road trip, you guys got to come home, play the first professional rugby game um on Canadian soil. Um, unfortunately a loss to Noah. But, like, what was that experience like in the first home game here in the Anthem on Canadian soil the first time with the, you know, the Arrows colors as well? It was great, man. Like, we remember, I remember walking up, like, they had the Arrows flags put up all the ways you're walking onto the York, that York field. Like, it felt like a professional environment. Like, you walk around, you see the Toronto Arrows symbol everywhere. You see fans pouring in. I don't remember if it was that game or it was a different game. I remember they ran out of beer as well at some point. Like it's, you, and I remember that was, that was the first game. game. Like, yeah, I mean that's pretty. That's pretty much as Canadian as you're gonna get. I'm gonna put <laughs> it that way. They get a first rugby game, but as far as the on-field stuff goes, like you hear the cheer, you hear the roars, like you want to play in front of these fans. Like my mom and dad were always there. Like my brother and sister were there as well. Like it always adds that good special feeling to playing in front of your parents and your siblings. But now overall, I've Again, you already said it. It was a loss. It was a tight loss, but a loss nonetheless. Mm-hmm. But the experience overall was, again, one that's just really hard to uh, emulate now. Yeah. And then, obviously, the second half of that season, after that loss, you guys rattle off seven straight dubs to uh, clinch the playoff spot in very dramatic fashion in the final game against New York as well. Um, there was a, you know, and even at one point, I guess Austin had a flight canceled. So you guys ended up having to play like three games in basically eight days too during yeah, that was fun. one run as well. What was that entire, like that streak? Like, um, as you said, you got to be at home for all of it, played at York, played at Lamport stadium. Uh, so got to experience, played it. And, uh, you know, 
basically, as you said, you were 500 after the first road trip. So you almost basically did have to run the table to make the playoffs. And then you guys ended up doing it. So like, what was that streak like? Oh yeah, we did. Like you said, we played at two different venues during, during that eight game stretch. We were at home. So yeah, we were resting up in our own beds finally, but Again, you also mentioned that we had to play three games. I think it was eight, eight or nine days. Yeah. So there were stretches of that that were just aggressive. They were super, super tiring on the body and super tiring on the mind. So now you're trying to find a way to practice enough to prepare each of these individual games while also rest enough. And then you're also dealing with all the injuries that we had at that time as well and trying to manage players' bodies and who can start, who can sub, who can play X amount of minutes at any given time. So at one certain point, we're just running on adrenaline. We're running on the wins. That's all it is. We got the fans behind us. We're winning every single game. And again, I don't think a lot of those games were blowouts. I think most of those games were within a two within two scores for the most part. Like they weren't they weren't easy by any metric of the imagination. So yeah, I'm gonna put a lot of that on adrenaline and yeah. overconfidence. But uh, you know, it worked out. We ran the table, so it works. Yeah, for sure. Uh, any emotions or thoughts watching uh, Sam's drop goal go over the post at the uh, end of the the 16th game? Oh, yeah, it's still right over my head. I was just watching. I was like, ah, oh, this kid's special. This is great. And you just start running back. And we uh, there was still like two or three minutes left in that game. So we was like, all right, tackle, tackle, tackle. That's all you got to do for the next three minutes. He's done his job. Everyone else, do your job. And we're going to get out of this one. And it was, it was epic. It was great. Yeah. I remember when, and I'll get on to this point in a second, above, uh, the coaches were saying that when the drop goal went over, they were the other side of Lamport Stadium, and they yeah. just heard a wall of cheers hit them from the crowd. Because no. I think it was the largest crowd the Arrows had had up until that point. And just the amazing reaction. And being there, it was certainly amazing to watch as well. Um but move on to the next season. So 2020, that um, was set to start out similar to 2019. Um, the first eight games will be away and the final eight would be at home. Of course, best laid plans. That didn't go that, uh, down. It only got to the fifth game. Uh, you guys were in Colorado after um, falling to the Raptors. And then you get told the season's taking a 30-day break. And then it's the season's been cancelled for the year. So, um, question: How did you adapt from being geared up for another season, and then having to just stop everything? I think most folks call it depression. I think is yeah. what it's, I think is what it's called. Yeah, so you start yeah I've off, heard of that. Yeah, yeah, it happens. But, uh, we we started that year great as well. Like we had added a few extra really good pieces as well onto our already strong foundation. We started off four and the road as well. Like we are doing phenomenal to start this year. Yeah, there was a tight loss to the Raptors, which is all obviously frustrating. But then, like you already do, okay, guys, we're gonna take you know we're just gonna take a quick break with COVID. We'll be back in one week. You know, three weeks goes by. Okay, it's it's gonna be a month. Two weeks goes by, like. All right, so here's you know here's your money. We're gonna see you guys in eight months. And like, oh come on, like this is this just sucks. But um, yeah, it's it, ultimately depressing is the only word I can put for that season. Just what could have been. Did you uh, join the uh, sourdough craze during lockdown, or did you uh, do anything <laughs> else to occupy your time? 
<laughs> no, I kept working the entire time in the beer industry. So Ontario, you know, it's an essential service. So <laughs> who knew, right? So I did not stop working. Unfortunately, but no, that was actually the one good thing about uh, my job. No time for sourdough. <laughs> Well, beer's got to get delivered, right? So it's uh, working with a different kind of yeast product. (laughs) I can only do so many things. Yeah. Well, 2021 uh, came around, and Mm -hmm. uh, because of the border situation, the uh, long road trip that was uh, 2019 suddenly looks like a weekend away as uh, the arrows bunker down in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, for what was meant to be the start of the season, which obviously then dragged out to the entire stretch and yeah we've uh spoken with like other players we've spoken with some of the coaches of just like the mental aspect of being away from families for essentially like four months um but uh can you describe how you were able to keep morale going doing such a difficult and unique time difficult and unique yeah yeah, it's essentially like those four months in Atlanta were essentially like going on a two-week vacation to Vegas with your best friends, but it was only the last three days of that vacation straight. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> completely, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you're still in a good place. This is still supposed to be a lot of fun, but I got to get out of here. Like, this is just too much for me right now. But as far as morale goes, like, we had a good we had a good group of guys. Like we went golfing, we would go tubing down the river. Like it was just at a certain point, just trying to do different social things to keep our spirits high instead of following the same routine, going back to the same hotel. Uh, yeah. Morale, the, you know, during the last month, I would say it was probably the toughest thing to keep going, but we did it. And again, there's lots of guys on that team that were only on the team for one year that I'm still in contact with. Like it's still good memories. Was it always good? No, but it's still playing rugby. It's still playing a great sport with your friends. So you can't knock it too harshly, you know what I mean? And because of each team having two bye weeks, for the first bye week, were you all of the mindset of, let's just go off and do our own things. That's the, you know, we can do things in the United States. We don't need to see you guys for a couple of days. And then the second bye week was also the final week of the season. So you guys are able to go home essentially like a week earlier. So I guess that must have been a great reprieve of uh, just being back on the familiar ground. Yeah, that that uh, that last week by week was just a nice little blessing in disguise just to be able to get back to our families. Because a lot of guys during that first by week, you know, like myself included, would have loved to have come home, you know, mm-hmm. see their family, see their partners, see their dogs, all that sort of stuff, which was, you know, unable to happen. So that final by week, I guess most people were ready to go see their families and, you know, hug some loved ones and get out of the hotel room for ever, really. <laughs> um, do you guys stay at the same hotel if you're going back to Atlanta or do you, uh, do you avoid that one? Yeah, I, I get PTSD whenever someone brings it up and boys love bringing it up as well. The Marietta, Marietta. Oh yeah. No, I don't like it. No. Next <laughs> okay, question. So diff- different hotel for the uh, season opener <laughs> this year. Though. Yeah. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> um. So obviously, so we'll move on. Uh, you got named captain for uh 2022 season. Um. So obviously, we did kind of mention you've been with the club since well beyond the formation of the Toronto Arrows, essentially. So, 
Uh, what was that like being uh, being named captain um, for the 2022 season? Yeah, didn't see it coming. <laughs> Honestly, like I, uh, I know I've been there for a while, and you know I always like just to put my head down, do the hard work, and you know just get on with my day and enjoy it. But you know, enough of the boys felt that I could bring something to the table more than that, and I was more than happy to do it last year. It was a great, it's a great honor to be perfectly honest with you. I couldn't, I couldn't have had a better group of guys to lead and you know have supporting me as well during that time. So. Uh, yeah, it had been a very, very, very long time since I had been in a leadership role like that. And I welcomed with open arms. It was challenging at times, like anything is, but you know, got through it, had great times, and got some good uh, experience out of it. Yeah, so um, when you were announced captain, it was also announced that Lucas Rumble and Sam Malcolm were your vice captains as well. Um was it just you three that were part of the leadership group or were there more players? And um, what were your responsibilities in that role of like the leadership position um, for the other guys in the club? Yeah. So we had the, us for the three main of the leadership group, but then you also have your attack leaders, your scrum leaders, your lineup leaders and your defense leaders. And basically it's just to make sure that we're all on the same page in the day. So the attack leaders, they'll do their own thing. The defense leaders, their own thing. When we bring it all together for big information for the collective group, we just all make sure that everybody's on the same page. Everyone's giving the same direct messages. So there's less confusion, or at least the least amount of confusion as possible to be given when we're giving the direction for, like, say, we're playing in a week this week in Dallas. What's the weather going to be like? What's our style of attack going to be? What new lineups we want to input? We're just there to make sure that the leaders of their own specific activities get managed in the way that they need to be managed. And if at all, to be honest with you, because at this level, most of the boys are pretty smart, pretty on the ball with their tasks they do every week. So during the off season this year, there's been uh, notable names uh, leaving the club. So Andrew, uh, so basically it seems like half the guys have gone to Boston to yeah. uh, apply their trade down there. Um and we've had like a bunch of like new guys coming in, and we're you know just uh, we've already had one preseason game already. Um, how do you feel that the uh, preseason has gone so far? Yeah, I guess those boys like their clam chowder, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. This this club's preseason has been. Uh, <laughs> hit the ground running like we have all new SNCs as well uh like there was a lot of coaching staff turnover that came in this year just not from the player standpoint and everybody that's come into this environment is here to work and get more work done than there has been in previous years everyone's willing and looking to make their mark and it's being it's definitely noticeable from these first few weeks like just being together as a team everybody is laser focused and everybody's trying to do their absolute best. At times, it's, again, it can be a little much. It can be a little hectic. Maybe there's a bit of, a bit too much information, if that makes sense, coming forward at one point. Just everyone has a different agenda they're trying to get going. But once the collective picture comes together, I think it's going to be a really, really special result, even though it might just take a little bit of time for everyone to find their exact footing on what they need to do and how they need to do it. Yeah, and I think you kind of talked about that a little bit earlier, but like obviously 
there's you know a handful with with players moving out that means there's obviously a handful of new guys coming in um especially the pack seems to have a lot of uh, a little bit of turnover as well um you got a lot of especially even at your position there's a lot of new locks on this team too like how um how easy it's difficult like what are the, like the challenges kind of integrating the new guys into the system and not even just into the system as you've been alluding to a lot in this episode um but like the culture of the team both on and off the pitch so the culture is the easy one because i think everybody that's come into toronto knows that we have a good culture we've always had a good core group of guys and even extends the fan base like people are always excited to meet the new guys in town Everybody is welcoming. If everyone ever need anything, guys are easily available to help guys move or pick out a restaurant or X, Y, and Z and all that sort of shit. But the on-the-field stuff, all we're trying to do, and it's not even that difficult because everyone that is brought in is a talented rugby player that has plenty of experience. All we need to do is make sure that we're on, on the exact same page because, you know, people have different backgrounds, different rugby knowledge, and they want to all bring in something that they think will make the team more successful because of their previous experience. But the really difficult thing is we all need to do the exact same thing. We don't need to do what's best for the individual. We're trying to do what's best for the team. Mm-hmm. So at a certain point, you know, that's just going to happen. Eventually, some guys are going to, you know, accept that this is the way we're going to do things. And we're not going to do it this way anymore. Maybe against a different team, we might need a different strategy where your input might be more useful. And then we can implement it then a different week. But the biggest thing is, is everyone just putting, you know, their own personal ego and experience to the side and working on this new common goal that everyone's going to have together and listening to the same voice and doing the same actions. Yeah, for sure. And obviously, you guys maybe got to see that in action a little bit. You had a preseason game already against New York. Um, not necessarily a whole lot known about that game from, from our end, but uh, just maybe uh, you could shed some light on it a little bit. Uh, like, what did you, uh, what'd you guys like out of that game? Is there anything that... You know, there's obviously a couple tries that got scored and stuff. Like, how did you view, like, the first preseason game against uh, against New York? And, like, what went well from your point of view? What maybe do you think the, the team's got to work on a little bit before uh, the season opener on February 17th? Uh, so, for that game in Detroit, I think I think everything happened needed to happen. Because, again, yeah. we scored right out of the gate. We had a few good tries. We were pretty dominant in that first half. And in the second half, you know, to summarize, we weren't as dominant in the second half. But it's especially in the preseason, it's important to not be dominant because you need to you need to see where your weaknesses are. Because you could have we could have played that game and we might have been able to win, you know, twenty-eight to seven or thirty-eight to fifteen, something like that. But if our weaknesses aren't exposed and we can't see them on the field, there's no telling what other teams can or cannot see either. So as long as you can identify your weaknesses early. That gives us more opportunities to work on those weaknesses and make sure that they're not weaknesses, you know, come week two, four, and then 16. Like, the earlier that we can work on our the shit that we don't do well, mm-hmm. the easier we can be a better team. Like, I, I'm, yeah. I have no problem with us having, you know, some tries scored on us because you really need to see your flaws because you honestly don't really see them until they're shown to you. So, mm-hmm. that makes sense. So, we're going to, Move away from the Arrows for the moment and talk about uh, your time uh, representing the Maple Leaf of Canada. So your first uh, match for Canada was against Kenya in the 2019 uh, World Cup Repertage Tournament. Um, so, so first of all, how did it feel to be uh, selected to represent your nation? 
Uh, I think like a lot of that is like similar to the arrows that came quite fast as well. Like uh, Kinsey Jones came in and I played a few friendly test matches for him on a, on the French tour. Uh, he liked enough of that what he saw of me to bring me back out for the repechage. And again, I was working full time delivering beer, but when I got these you know separate phone calls saying, "Okay, I like you here, let's come see you here," and then going out to the repechage in Marseille, you know. I was planning on just being a reserve. I thought I was there to help other guys get better and, you know, get a bit of experience for myself. And then I was able to come off the bench and I was able to get a cap and I was even able to score in that first game. Like it's, I couldn't have, I couldn't have been happier, especially since I scored in the 69th minute, which is hilarious. So, <laughs> you know, I really couldn't have asked for more of a first cap to be perfectly honest with you. And then, you know, I got to start the next two games as well. And you know, we, up making the World Cup for 2019, and yeah, I I don't really have a whole lot of words to describe those sort of feelings because uh, I'm not too good with feelings. Stu, I think we have to try our absolute hardest to make sure this episode's runtime is 69 minutes now. <laughs> All right, let's see what we can do. Yeah, let's come up it. with come up with something. Uh, okay, describe in very precise detail the next few things we're going to ask. Um, so. Playing, so obviously playing the nation for the first time, this is like a lot of emotions and stuff. But this was also basically like the this was a repertoire tournament. It was for the final spot of the 2019 Rugby World Cup. This was like a last chance saloon. So and uh, going into these were games against Hong Kong, Kenya, and Germany. And Germany was part of the um fallout from Romania and Spain being disqualified from their World Cup. And then, because I remember even reading at the time, there had been issues of, um, you know, the investment in German rugby, especially at the national level, had gone down. And then as soon as it was announced that they had a shot of getting into the World Cup, that investment just came right back in. Um, So when you are over there and, you know, you have... um, other guys like DTH Van der Murra, Ray Barkwell, and you guys are realizing that you need to win these games, get the bonus points to secure that World Cup spot. What was the emotions going along between the games? Because I think it was the second game you um, Canada had, you know, got the bonus point and basically guaranteed qualification. So, how yeah. between those games, how were the emotions amongst the players? Amongst the players, it was high. Like we were riding good highs. Like we had a solid performance against Kenya. Uh, that second game against Germany, you know, it was a tough luck game again as well. But we overcame it. We won the first game. They were the ones. They were our main competition out of those three. That we were all feeling like we, if we can beat the Germans, we can handle Kenya, and then we'll be able to handle Hong Kong in the very final game. My personal emotions were just don't screw up, don't screw up, don't screw up, don't be the person to. Ruin any of this. If the ball comes at you, you catch it. If someone runs at you with the ball, you tackle them. You don't miss tackles. You don't drop the ball. So I was putting quite a bit of pressure on myself just to try and not, you know, be any sort of reason why Canada would never make, would not be the first to not make the World Cup in its nation's history. And thankfully, I was able to get over those jitters. But as far as the team environment goes, like I couldn't have asked for a better team environment, especially for. You know, the 29-year-old guy coming and getting his first caps for Canada with a bunch of guys that have been there for years and plenty of years. It was 
they made it really easy on me. And I think that showed with our playing ability. Well, so obviously the ideal result came from the Refresh Tournament Canada uh, qualified in admittedly a very tough group with both the All Blacks and South Africa. Um, but yeah, pretty good. yeah, yeah, that's what I've heard as well. But uh, I'll see it when I see it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so the following year, you're on the uh, World Cup squad out in Japan. Uh, so what have been some of your best experiences whilst uh at the world cup both on the field and off the field well off the field i you know my parents my grandmother my siblings and some of my cousins as well they came out to japan to see two or three of the games themselves i had some other friends that came out to see several games uh just seeing people that you know in a crowd of sixty thousand people that all these people are here to see you but these people specifically came to be there and support you and see you is just even extra special. But uh, for the on-field stuff, like, I remember the very first game against Italy, just running out of that tunnel, and you just see this wall of people and this wall of sound just hits you. It's just, I'll you never never feel anything like that ever again. And like I'll hold that memory with me till I die. That sort of thing is just, uh, yeah. And like again. Staring down the haka is, again, something that you really will never be able to get in my entire life ever again. I can watch it as much as I want on TV, but you know, standing 10, 12 feet away from however far it was, uh, that's, that's just a very, very special moment in my life that I'll hold dear, dear to me forever. Yeah, like, what, what is the haka like? like? Is it, like, intimidating to look at, or is it more it's just awesome. like, this is the that's coolest so, thing I've ever seen? That's so like, oh, I know what they're going to do to me after. I know <laughs> I know what follows this. I've seen what follows this. But New Zealand plays rugby. Yeah. I didn't care. I was just sitting there. I was like, oh, I hope this never ends. This is the best minute of my life. But, you know, again, the shit kicked out of you after that. It's also pretty cool. Too. <laughs> yeah, at least you get that. That's, uh, not, not everybody gets to play the All Blacks in a World Cup, though, man. It's a... Uh... I mean, it's a special, like, occasion. It's not... Like, Ken doesn't get to play them that often, right? So, like... I, mean, yeah, if you cool. game, I, could, I could say I tackled all black in a World Cup game, so you know I'm happy with that. <laughs> no, no, fair enough. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Like some, as you said, like some memories to last a lifetime. Uh, obviously, being in a different, the first World Cup to take place in Asia as well, so being part of history. The and then of course the game against Namibia that never happened, but. You know, rugby Canada and rugby Namibia, uh, both being uh, there to help clean up afterwards, even though the game couldn't go ahead. And yeah, um, you know, making the most out of a unfortunate situation. Uh, then when uh, I've heard you uh, speak, but in back in twenty twenty of um, like deciding to step back from Canada duties. Uh, following the World Cup, um, obviously, making that decision for any player takes like some time to mull it over. What were the uh, factors that made you uh, come to that decision? Uh, the main factor, you know, even though I am still playing, it was my age. I knew the time that the next World Cup cycle came around, I would be thirty-four or thirty-five years old. So, 
it took a long time for me to get into the national squad. It took a lot of work. It took a lot of, you know, a lot of months of training, a lot of time away from, you know, friends and family during those last two years for that first World Cup. And I know that there's better players than me in Canada. There are. There always have been. In my position as well, like, I need, I need to have those younger guys get more minutes. They need to get more exposure if they're going to be better. And the more exposure they can get younger, the better. There's no point in me going in as a 33-year-old trying to play a test match, you know, against Namibia or Portugal when there's plenty of other talented and deserving athletes that can get their better experience for that next World Cup. So, you know, my factors were I wanted to, I wanted to spend more time with my family and I wanted the best for Canadian rugby, which unfortunately in the next four years was not going to be myself. So, you know, it was, it was a no-brainer after that World Cup that I got – everything I wanted and more out of. So I'm you know, trying not to be selfish in that respect. You guys also, obviously, as part of the Toronto Arrows, you are obviously involved with, you know, training sessions with a lot of these, like, younger players that are going to be, like, the next wave okay. of guys to represent the Canadian national team. Um, so I asked uh, Corey Thomas this question uh, when we interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. So just ask it to you as well. Is there anybody that you're kind of seeing kind of coming up from, um, you know, either that's with uh, the big club now or even just what you've seen from the academy, any like players of the next generation that um, you're really excited about, whether they're a lock or any other position? Well, Corey just got voluntold that he's going to be with the second row a lot more than he'd like to this year. So I'm really excited <laughs> to see him develop into the second row out of the back row position about time. <laughs> you know, there's also guys like Mason, like Mason Flash is you know, he's an incredibly young athlete. He's coming up. I know he already has some Canada cast, but you know, the season last year was kind of short with injury. But you know, he's he's a fantastic player. He's got such a good work ethic, and you know, once he puts on a bit more size, once he bulks up a little bit, he's going to be a fantastic. <laughs> he's and, you know, there's a lot more younger guys. Like I don't really care about the second rows. I don't really look at the young and upcoming wingers. Like I'll let somebody else figure that out. Who's good and who's not. I don't. I'm no character for that, but you know, as far as those young finders are coming up, I like to see them at the practices, and I just enjoy getting the know them and getting them to make some tick. Yeah, it's it's funny because Corey Thomas answered Mason Flesh as well, so it's um I guess uh I guess that's the uh, the guy to kind of look out for on the uh, the arrows this year. Man, he sure is. <laughs> no, great minds think alike. Absolutely. Um, now speaking of um. Rugby Canada. It's been nearly a year now since the high performance review um, was released by Rugby Canada, which gave a pretty damning insight into how the structure has been run previously, basically coming down to lack of communication, both um, from the organization to other organizations across the country, as well as to the players coaches and the fans as well and you know when it came out uh, we spoke about it and was saying that you know things aren't going to be resolved overnight it's going to take time for things and things need to be done and you know sometimes things work sometimes things don't but you know you have to give it a chance give it a shot um but following the high performance review and from your experiences with rugby canada what needs to change for Rugby Canada to improve from your perspective? Well, I think you just said it. It's the communication. Like That is from top to bottom. Like People need to know what's going on. People need to know what to expect. 
if you have like say a three or four or five year plan of how things are going to progress and develop, everyone needs to know what's going on. You can't leave people in the dark about, you know, what your plans are for the future for any organization or any sort of or a rugby club for that matter. You need to know, like if you're coming into this as a young individual, what can I expect my development pathway to be over these next few years? Like, I don't want to come out. Like I've heard stories like guys growing up, going out to the Island to try and play rugby for Canada and they end up sleeping on a couch and, you know, they don't really have enough money to make ends meet. Now I know that stuff is getting, has been fixed in the past. Like guys, they built the high performance center. They have places for guys to say everything they can nowadays, but you know, you can't just delude some young kids and think, Hey, if you come out here, everything's going to be sweet. You'll be totally taken care of. And you're going to play for your country at the national level. One day you need to set realistic goals for these young kids. Like this is what I expect from you. This is what's going to happen. And if you genuinely think that this interests you still, come on out here and we'll make you the best rugby player that Canada has to offer. But you need to be upfront with that sort of shit from day one. All right. So, you know, you've been talking about um, playing with the arrows as well as working in the uh, uh, alcoholic beverage industry. And you previously mentioned in interviews that you've been able to work with Cold House Direct outside of rugby. Um, so professional rugby, thankfully, is growing not just in Canada, but also in North America as well. Um, but, you know, even in, uh, you know, in some of the top leagues, like in uh, England or in France or across Europe, you'll still see players that have, um, you know, uh, professions outside of rugby. So, for example, uh, DTH van der Merwe, when uh, he was uh, playing in you know, Glasgow and uh, for the Scarlet, he was also training as a firefighter as well. So as professionalism begins to grow, do you think players will still need to rely on other employers or do you think there's going to be a push soon to increase uh, MLR player salaries from its current cap? Well, I'll just say I really do. I don't think they should be reliant on the other professions, but I do hope that some of them still pursue it. Like DTH, for example, like, everyone knows that there is going to be life after rugby in some form or so if you want to follow something you're passionate about at an early start by all means go do that like there is zero harm in having you know more feathers in your cap uh do i hope that the salary cap and player salaries increases absolutely but you know as you probably are well aware of that's going to all start from the fan base like people have to come out and watch games like we have to watch more games on tv if you don't come out the action games as well like this money that's going to come to the league, it's got to come from somewhere. It comes from viewership. It comes from growing the sport, growing a solid fan base, and, you know, having your ticket sales, having TV sales. Because once that sport grows in that respect, then you can get bigger, better contract deals for TVs, and all that money is going to go somewhere. It's going to go into the players' pockets because you're putting out a product that people want to see. So, yeah, I absolutely hope that it keeps growing, and I hope that players get paid more so they don't have to work two jobs. And, you know, it just comes down to, hey, we're putting a good enough product out there. Are we playing fun, exciting sport that kids want to watch, kids want to play when they grow up, and they beg their parents to go watch live? Okay, so a question that's been coming up um, with other MLR teams has even been brought up by the commissioner is having players' names on the back of jerseys to increase, um, you know, making special jerseys, having uh, names and numbers printed on the back as well. Uh, as a player in MLR with a team that currently doesn't do this, are you for or against having names on the backs of jerseys? Do it. Absolutely do it. Why not? You know, that's that's what these kids like. Okay. 
this is an American league. Make it like every other American sport, because I'm pretty sure the NHL, the NBA, and the NFL are doing just fine. And the LB, they're doing pretty good as well. Like, <laughs> they're doing something, right? Like, I don't think that, you know, copying them would be the worst idea in the world, if you, unless you hate making millions of dollars. But, you know, like, it's, I don't think, like, okay, you can be a rugby purist, you can be a traditionalist, and they're saying, like, oh, well, you know, you're just a number four. Like, I know you're a second or like, put the name on the jersey. Let some kid, again, if I was back in high school and I got to go see one of these games, I would be in the same problem as I was watching on TV. I don't know any of these guys' names. I have to look it up later and figure out who I actually like. I didn't know Martin Johnson's name just by seeing him play a few games for England. I need to go and figure out who this guy is. And if I can watch him again, like, hey, there's Johnson. I like Johnson a lot. I'm going to support Johnson. Then you know what? Then you go out and buy a jersey or, you know, actually do something else with the name. But yeah, I think it's a great idea. I think anything to help grow the sport and get some more money into it is has to be a no-brainer. Yeah, I think that's uh that's always been kind of, I guess, my thought on that. Cause like you uh like you just kind of alluded to before, right? Like, um, you know, if you want things like the salary cap or um to go up or players' salaries to go up or more money to go into the league, you need the fans to be willing to give their money to the various products that the league offers and part of my thought on that is like right now maybe uh like a maybe like a diehard arrow fan might buy two jerseys like get a home and an away for each year but it's like if you could buy a jersey that you can get one that says shepherd you can get one that says rumble one that says flesh one that says malcolm you're probably that diehard fan is now buying Maybe like seven jersey. I don't know. I'm just throwing out numbers for the sake. Right now, my mom will buy a shepherd jersey today if you make. <laughs> we'll put money in your pocket, Bill. If you just put shepherd on that back, I guarantee it. <laughs> well, that's there you go. See, this is how this is how easy it is. Yeah. It's like we already sold yeah. one shepherd jersey. Yeah. 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 <laughs> See, we've we've got this MLR business sorted. I mean. All, all we need is a, all we need is about a couple hundred million, and uh, we'll get another team set up in Canada. And that's yeah, step two. Sure, we'll yeah. work on step one well, first. Yeah, we'll, we'll work on it. It'll be fine. Step three is profit. That's all I know. We'll get there. Some. We'll get there someday. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, uh, you know, you, you just you got like a few more minutes before we hit the 69th minutes, too. So you got yeah, to, uh, I, again, I got the question to end, end this on perfectly. Uh, I'm I'm fleshing this out as much as I can. So, um, obviously, you've had a very um, illustrious career so far. You've um, played for the Ontario Blues and what's now become the Toronto Arrows. You represent your country on at the Rugby World Cup. Um, when it does uh, come time for you to say you're going to hang up the boots and call it a day, what do you want to be able to say that you've achieved when your career finishes? I would like to say that I left the place better than I found it is essentially what I want to do, which I think anyone would want to do when they go in any sort of professional environment or any working environment or any, you know, personal environment, no less. Like you just come in and I remember a lot of things fondly. My most fond memories of that 2019 season, even with a lot of the blue seasons, like, in the Rugby Canada years I was there, there were so many great things with a lot of great people, a lot of great wins, experiences, and friends get along the way. But there were some shit things as well. You know, it was never all, you know, rainbows and puppies and all that sort of stuff. And thankfully, I've been with the Arrows for long enough that 
you know, we have made some changes. I've been there long enough. I was only probably Canada for two years, really, in the highest level, like playing with that national team. So I wasn't there enough to enact any sort of real change. But with the Arrows, you know, I've seen us come from having to do, you know, some long commutes for training and in some different environments. You know, we adapted as best we could and we had some good results as, as a result of it. But now, you know, we're in this 2023 year. We have a great home base. We have some excellent facilities set up with a lot of good talent, coaching and player and management-wise. And I think everything that's coming together this year is a result of a lot of years of hard work and a lot of trial and error of seeing what doesn't work and what does work. And we've been able to keep the good things and we've been able to adjust the bad things. And maybe not even bad things, maybe just things that just didn't quite work for us, but now are working better than ever. And hopefully that just is going to stay this the way it is. And it can even get better from there. But that's really all I can hope for is just that when I do leave this, you know, great place, basically home to me for the past five years is going to be better than when I found it. So outside of your own career, you know, MLR started out in 2018 with only like seven clubs. It's now uh, expanded to 12. Obviously we wish it had been more, but you know, financials. Yeah. So concerned, um, but you know, what are you hoping to see, both as a player and a fan, from MLR and also Rugby Canada over the next few years? Well, I think for Rugby Canada, it's a pretty obvious one when that thirty thirty one World Cup comes around to the Americas. Like, I want to see a Canadian team that is ready to compete and ready to put on a really good show for home fans as well. And I think they're doing a good job with all the young players that they're bringing in and keeping them together. And hopefully as these next few years go by, that team gets stronger and more cohesive and they bring in more better talent, just like we did with the Ontario Blues. They have a good starting group of young core players. And then over the next few years, maybe they bring in one, two, three or four more good glue guys that can really add to that team. Because when that World Cup does come around, you know, I want to be able to watch those games live because I will be going to watch them. And I want to, you know, see some good results. I want to see them just play a good brand of rugby that people can get excited about. The same thing that the MLR is doing. I want that to keep being as exciting as it has been. There's been some really good games over the past few years. There's been some good finals and some good rivalries are really starting to spur up as well. Then as far as the MLR goes, I just want to keep getting better and better. Like they don't necessarily have to keep adding, you know, more and more teams. It doesn't need to be a 32 team league, like the NFL or the MLB. But if you can get to a solid good 16 teams, that play a really good brand of rugby that can, you know, generate revenue, good fan bases. And you get more of those games on TV, like not just like on the select local channels, but you can actually get it like the CBS sports game of the week. If they're showing it like six games every week, that's how, you know, the league's getting better. That's what I want to see. I want to be able to turn on my TV and just flip to a random channel and just say, Oh, there is rugby on the day. And it's right here in front of me. So I can just keep that on. Like that's the most I can really hope for the league. Then, you know, hope the arrows go on a five year shield winning spree. <laughs> most, yeah, most, most importantly, yeah. the, uh, that's, not, you know, that's not too unrealistic, but yeah, no, I mean, of course, man. I mean, personally, I would have said seven years at least, but I mean, if, if five is, you want seven, take seven, you know, I'll be happy with five, but you know, I yeah. just, okay, you know, so. Uh yeah, so we'll we'll circle back to the arrows just as uh we're wrapping up here. Obviously, you guys got one more preseason game um against um, Old Glory DC this week, and then 
you know, the season starts um, with Atlanta next week. Like, what are the expectations that you guys have going into this season? Obviously, you may have just kind of said it. It's the first of at least five shields in a row. Yeah, the expectations are high. And, you know, those expectations are put on us, not necessarily by our coaching staff, but just by ourselves. Like, the amount of talented players that we have in the room and on the field um, is crazy. We have so much talent. We have a lot of depth this year. And right now we're just trying to find our footing. So the expectation of that is that we find that footing before that first game next week. We use this next preseason game against DC to really gel and really fix some of those mistakes that we saw in ourselves in New York and fill those holes sooner rather than later. So that when we do go into Atlanta next year or next year, next week, we're mentally prepared. We know our assignments. We know what we have to do. And we start off the year with a win because, you know, we don't want to start off on that wrong foot. We want to go in there. It's the coveted fire and ice cup after all. Yeah. And it would be nice to, you know, bring a little bit of hardware back to start week one. Cause I think that is the best way to jump starting the year. Yeah. Not, not too many teams get a shot at a, a trophy on a game one of the season. Week one. Yeah. <laughs> it's a one big game few, already. Because of uh, the, we, uh, removal of uh two certain teams is now one of the few uh trophies that are still uh available in mlr to be competed for so you know gives it a bit more prestige to it absolutely yeah yeah well you know we're all looking forward to uh watching the arrows on uh tsn when it's away and we're looking forward to uh i think april 8th which is the uh first home game of the season That's looking yeah, looking forward to seeing you guys run out. Um, but yeah, I think we're going to end the podcast there. As always, Shep, thank you so much for joining us. And to all our viewers and listeners, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast and would like to listen to more, you can do so on Spotify, Anchor FM, or Apple Podcasts. And if you like uh, watching these podcasts, as well as a few uh, select interviews we have with uh, players post-games, you can do so on our YouTube channel, at The Rouge Rugby. In fact, you can find us across all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Shep, do you have a social media profile that uh, people can check out and see how uh, you're doing during the uh, MLR season? Yeah, I do. I don't post a whole lot, but you can follow me at Dusty Sheppy. Fantastic. <laughs> and um, as well, as uh, if uh, people are interested in buying some Arrows tickets, got the home opener in April versus New York, where could they? Uh, where can they do that? So they just went on single game tickets, just went on sale earlier this week too, I believe. That's right. It's torontoarrows.com. Come on out. We'll have a great time. Always plug in, always plug in. You know, get it, uh, go on torontoarrows.com, get in touch and tell them you want to shirt with shepherd on the back and uh you know <laughs> become, the, become the first club to make a million dollars in the mlr history uh derek where can the fine people find you online um you can find me at reset the jet uh, across all social media platforms and i'm available across social media at hardman spelled h4r-d-m-a-n well guys uh Another great episode of the LaRouge Rugby Podcast. As always, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. We definitely appreciate it, and we're definitely looking forward to the 2023 MLR season. No worries. Thanks for having me on, Stu and Derek. This is great. I always listen to your podcast. I see all the boys on them all the time, so it was just a fair time before I got called up. But, you know, just like I was late to Canada Rugby, I guess I was late to the podcast as well. But, you know, 
better late than never. Right. I was super happy yeah. to be here. This is great. Brock, always, Brock yeah. told us that we had to work our way up to uh, yeah. to Mike Shepard. We'll just go right past the middle. Man. Don't worry about that. <laughs> See now, now it's the point where we just try to like milk time on this random question. Yeah, just, yeah, like, we got like four minutes. So. Yeah, four minutes to go. So if there's anything you want to let the fine people know, Mike. By yeah, all and all any just... any closing words you have to make the speech. You can do like a like a Braveheart style like speech to go into the the first half of the season here. Just... Uh, no, no. Just not like in life. Sometimes you'll make it to the 69th minute. You know what I mean? It's all right. But, uh, you know, just all the Toronto fans, like, you know, I always loved you guys. I always love seeing you come out of the games. And uh, I can't wait to see you guys this year. Hopefully we can bring that show for you. Perfect. Yeah. Well, we absolutely appreciate it. Thanks once again, Chet, for joining us. Derek, thank you for joining me. And to all of our listeners and viewers, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the LaRouge Rugby Podcast, where we focus on real Canadian rugby. We hope to see you all again next time.